Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Paolo Seguato, Assistant Professor of Law at George Mason University. We'll be discussing his article, Financial Regulation, Corporate Governance, and the Hidden Cost of Clearinghouses, which is forthcoming in the Ohio State Law Journal. Seguato is also the author of The Ownership of Clearinghouses, When Skin in the Game is Not Enough, The Remutualization of Clearinghouses, which was published in the Yale Journal on Regulation. I'll add links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Paolo, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks a lot for having me. Paolo, I wondered if we could start with first things. Just what are clearinghouses? I assume this is not a reference, perhaps, to the publisher's clearinghouse. It's probably a different type of clearinghouse you're talking about. So could you introduce to the listeners what these institutions are, the role that they play in the financial markets, and how do they work at a mechanical level? Clearinghouses are a critical part of the plumbing of the financial system. They operate in the walls of Wall Street, and for this reason, oftentimes, they go overlooked. But through this plumbing, run trillions of dollars worth of transaction every single day. And unfortunately, as it's generally the case for the normal plumbing, people look and pay attention to the clearing plumbing only when it clogs and breaks down. Clearing houses are special intermediaries. They operate as risk managers in the securities and derivatives market, as well as in the payment system. They provide post-trading services to market participants and support the smooth, efficient, and stable functioning of the market. Generally, they intervene after a trade is matched and a transaction is executed, either on a trading venue or over-the-counter between buyers and sellers. And to summarize, like clearinghouses are middlemen. They interpose themselves between buyers and sellers through a process of innovation and become the central counterparty to the trade. Using a bit of finance jargon, generally clearing houses are defined as buyer to every seller and seller to every buyer in a specific market. What do clearing houses do in the market and what are they function? As I said, like clearing houses are risk managers. And in order to act as risk managers, clearing houses have in place a comprehensive toolkit of risk management procedures and instruments that allow them to operate a stability buffer and clearing houses in some way, like the main function is to guarantee and support the financial performance of the contract that they process. Let me quickly go through a list of the main tools that clearing houses have to manage risk. First of all, in order to access a clearing house, in order to access clearing services, a financial institution need to qualify and meet specific membership standards that include prudential requirement, so capital requirement or operational and risk management capabilities, but also members once admitted, they agree to be overseen and monitored by the clearinghouse itself. The first line of defense of the clearinghouse is deciding who they want to transact with on the base of preset transparent rules. Then the second set of tools that clearinghouses have uh, to support their role as risk managers are financial tools. Simply put, clearinghouses collect 
margin as collateral for the open position that they process in the form of initial margin and variation margin. So they can adjust mark to market the exposure of the specific position that they process. Clearing houses also maintain a guarantee fund, which is pre-funded pool or buffer of resources that the clearing house can use to internalize and mutualize the losses associated with the default of one of its clearing members across the non-defaulting members. This feature of the clearinghouse risk management toolkit is what made them particularly appealing to policymakers in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. The last element of the toolkit that clearinghouses deployed to manage the risk of default, it's a clear and transparent default waterfall, which is a preset and clear list of and a priority of different resources that can be used by the clearinghouse to absorb the losses of a default member. And those lists generally include all the financial resources hosted by the defaulting members, either margin or contribution to the guarantee fund. If those resources are not enough, generally clearinghouse contribute to their own default waterfall mechanism by chipping in with some corporate contribution, what they generally call skin in the game. And then if even those resources are not enough to internalize the costs associated with the default of a clearing members, then the losses are mutualized among the non-defaulted members. And this is what makes clearing houses mechanism that internalize and mutualize the cost of default of one of the members across the non-defaulted. To wrap up, what do clearing houses do? Clearing houses are systemic risk managers and stability buffers in the financial system. You mentioned that like the plumbing in our homes or offices, we often don't think about clearing houses until there's a problem. This has been part of a research agenda for you. Could you talk a little bit about what motivates you to do research on clearing houses? Why is this research important and why should markets and policymakers and other academics be paying attention to what is going on with our clearing houses in the capital markets? These two pieces, the skin in the game piece and the even cost piece are part of a bigger project that look at clearing houses and financial market infrastructure in general. I became interested in these firms, particularly in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, when policymaker clearing houses as instrument to provide financial stability to the over-the-counter derivatives market. What I found fascinating about those firms was the historical evolution. These firms originally were private ordering mechanism and private ordering solution to market failure. So clearing houses originally were private and market-driven responses to the costs associated with counterparty risk. And the other aspect that I found extremely interesting is the evolution that clearing houses and market infrastructural group had over the course of the last 20 years. And these two pieces in some way set the conceptual and theoretical lens they've been using to analyze market infrastructure. The skin in the game piece draws from the theory of the firm literature and from the insightful work of Henry Hansman of, of the ownership of the firm to analyze the evolution in the ownership structure of clearing houses and infrastructural group in general, and use that lens to analyze the costs and benefits of different ownership models of clearing houses. Then the even cost piece builds and takes the lead from the skin in the game piece and situate clearing houses within the corporate finance literature and particularly look at how clearing houses operate as financial institutions. 
I'd like to talk about the regulatory aspect of clearinghouses. What was the state of play with these institutions before the 2008 financial crisis, the Dodd-Frank Act reforms that followed that crisis? What was the state of play immediately after the Dodd-Frank Act was put into place? And where are we today? Dodd-Frank structurally reformed the derivatives market. When Lehman filed for bankruptcy, there was a lot of panic surrounding the derivatives position that Lehman had. And same thing happened with AIG. So what was the situation before Dodd-Frank? The derivatives market before Dodd-Frank opaque bilateral over-the-counter market. The market that came out of the Commodity Future Modernization Act and the industry initiative that created this private contract that allowed participants to create synthetic position and to add risk, where market dominated by derivative dealers, where transaction, where highly opaque and where the market was a bundle of bilateral links that make it extremely difficult for market participants themselves to understand and price the risk and understand the exposure of the counterparty and made it very difficult for regulator to oversee and understand where and how risk was building in those markets. Dodd-Frank intervened drastically on those markets, changing completely the market structure of derivatives. Dodd-Frank mandated the use of central clearing for standardized derivatives. Standardized derivatives after Dodd-Frank have been required to be centrally clear by a clearinghouse. Dodd-Frank has two main titles that address the derivatives market, Title Seven and Title Eight of Dodd-Frank. Title Seven create both a new trading and post-trading environment for derivatives. And on one side, he encourage and require standardized derivative to be traded on swap execution facilities, but at the same time require standardized derivatives, whether or not they're executed on a swap execution facility to be centrally clear by the claim house. And Title VII set new prudential standards for claim houses. Title VIII create an additional layer and enhance prudential standards and requirement for clearing houses and create a two-layer structure. Simply put, if the Financial Stability Oversight Council label and designate a clearinghouse or using the terminology of Dodd-Frank, a financial market utility as systemically important, that would trigger additional and enhanced prudential standards for the clearinghouse itself and additional supervisory standards for those firms. But at the same time, a dual regulatory and supervisory structure, Title Eight assign the Federal Reserve, what I call in another paper, a regulator of last resort function. The Federal Reserve plays for systemically important financial market utility, a role as a backup supervisor and backup regulators to in some way provide a regulatory net for those firms in case the Federal Reserve does deem the regulation provided by the primary regulators, CFTC and SEC, insufficient or inadequate to address the systemic role that these firms play in the market. The situation that we have right now is that in the derivatives and securities market, and in the, my papers focus primarily on derivatives and securities, we have five systemically important financial market utilities. We have the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Intercontinental Exchange or ICE Clear Credit LLC, both under the supervision and regulation of the CFTC that handle interest rate swaps and credit fall swaps that has been designated as systemically important. And we have the National Securities Clearing 
Corporation and the Fixed Income Clear Corporation and the Options Corporation under the SEC jurisdiction and supervision being designated as systemically important clearinghouses. Right now in the US, we have five major clearinghouses operating in the derivatives and in the securities market. And what is interesting is that Dodd-Frank created and delegated to the FCC and CFTC a lot of responsibility in terms of implementing regulation to complete the vision and the picture and the legislative framework created by policymakers in the media aftermath of the crisis. But of those rules, some of them, particularly the more critical, in my opinion, in terms of governance and ownership structure of clearing houses and capital resilience, have been weak. And so more work needs to be done, in my opinion, to make clearing houses more resilient player in the financial system. You've mentioned a few problems in the clearinghouse system, one related to a lack of appropriate skin in the game for various participants. Now you're mentioning some weaknesses in governance structures. Could you identify some of the key problems presenting themselves for clearinghouses today? And if we were to think about the analogy of plumbing in a home or an office, are any of these problems at a critical point where we might need to call in a plumber going forward? I think we need to call it plumber to check the system because it's like when you buy a house and everything goes smoothly in the inspection, you never know if the day after, and that's generally what happened the day after you have a problem. The big problem that cleaning house face are the agency costs that spills from the, what I call the member shareholders divide and from the separation of risk and control in the governance and capital structure of these firms. I think Looking at clearing houses through the lens of the fear of the firm and looking at clearing houses through the lens of the agency cost, the presence of the guarantee fund altered and misaligned potentially the incentives of the clearing house and its shareholders from the incentives of the members. As I argue in the paper, in a clearing house, the stakeholders that bear the ultimate risk and so the ultimate risk bearers stakeholders aren't the one who do not have any control right, or more neutrally, not have any voice in deciding how risk is managed in the firm. And this exposed clearing houses to internal structural frigid. Put it differently, who set the risk profile, who set the risk tone at the firm level is not the one who ultimately bear the cost of such decision. In the paper, I draw an analysis with an imaginary reverse limited partnership. So imagine a, a limited partnership where general partners are, yep, jointly and severely liable, but have no control right. And limited partners have limited liability and full control right. Such governance and capital structure would create serious agency costs between general partners and limited partners and would polarize risk-taking incentives and risk bearing obligation, which would ultimately undermine the operation of this imaginary partnership. Ethnic cleaning house operate with such a similar structure because again, a member have substantial skin in the game. They are the provider of the guarantee fund and they're contractually bound to replenish such fund if it's necessary to support the operation of the firm, but they're not granted any formal right in the governance of the firm. They have no formal voice in the way a risk is managed, they have no formal voice in the way the clearinghouse sets its risk profile. And on the other hand, the clearinghouse and its shareholders, they join the benefits of limited liability. They have full control 
over the venture. And we, in the clearinghouse experience, this like it's pulling two different directions. On one side, you have the members who have full skin in the game and, but no control, right? And on the other side, you have the clearinghouse and the shareholders who have limited liability and full control, right? And I think this misalignment incentives are further exacerbated by the public policy role that was bestowed on clearing houses by lawmakers. Lawmakers, when they granted clearing houses the responsibility to operate in the derivatives market as a financial stability buffer, at the same time, when they assigned such a role to clearing houses, at the same time, they assigned a public policy function or using the terminology of Title Eight of the Frank, a utility role to firms that are operated and run as for-profit enterprises. So clearing houses are part of public corporation and the holding group of clearing houses is a public corporation listed on the market. On one side, you have the tendon, the corporation that needs to and the board of directors has a duty to maximize the value for its shareholders. And on the other side, you have the corporation that needs to operate in the market as a stability provider and a utility-like firm. This situation increased potentially the moral hazard of the firm. The moral hazard comes out and spills from the separation of risk and control. And it's even exacerbated by the presence of this explicit public backstop for clearing houses that comes out of the reliance on clearing services that implied when they mandated their use to stabilize the derivatives market. And in some way, this can be similar to an analysis of financial institution that operate an FDIC insured bank. Like 2008 financial crisis, a lot of people pointed at those large financial conglomerates as leveraging and taking on excessive risk because they were operating an FDIC insured bank. For clearinghouses, is a similar analysis to be a draw because clearinghouses are part of large infrastructural group that are publicly listed on the market and they need to maximize the value for their shareholders. But on the other side, the clearinghouse function was a function backed directly and indirectly, implicitly and explicitly by a public backstop. Clearinghouses face serious, in my opinion, moral hazard problem that needs still to be addressed by policymakers. In terms of addressing those problems, are there any solutions or reforms that you would propose? The paper provide a few policy solutions around to address the agency cost that spills from the separation of risk and control and address different aspects and different layers of a clearinghouse structure. So some policy proposal address what it's called like the resilience of the firm. So exante creating a stronger institution that can truly act as bastion of financial stability. But then I provide some policy solutions that address the recovery. So who's gonna provide the financial resources to a clearinghouse at time of distress? So yes, an ex-ante and ex-post, so a hybrid solution. And then I have the ultimate solution. What's gonna happen if all resources have been used up? I offer some policy solution to address the resolution of the firm. Let me quickly go through the policy solution that address the resilience of the firm. Clearinghouse's resilience, in my opinion, can be addressed in two ways. First, addressing the governance structure of those firms. And second, addressing the capital structure of the firm. In terms of governance, how can the governance of clearinghouses be fixed to make them more resilient firm and to address moral hazard? I the paper in some way draws some analogies from the Accountable Capitalism Act that Senator Warren proposed last year and argues that final risk bearers of those firms of clearinghouses 
should have a say in the way these firms are run. Right now, if we look at clearinghouses' internal rules, they assign members seats on the risk committees. They have a voice in some way in the way the clearinghouse perform is risk management function. But again, risk committees' decisions are not binding on the board of directors that can decide without informing regulators or without informing the members to take a different solution. The paper in some way argues that the industry and policymaker can look a different way to structure the governance of clearinghouses. First, clearinghouses can think about creating a multi-stakeholders board. Clearinghouses can decide to have and require a strong representation of members' interests at the board level. And they can do so by issuing specific classes of shares to the members with tailored voting rights on specific issues. And so members might be able in, in this way to have a representation of the board level and directly participating in the tuning of the risk profile of the firm. Another mechanism is to strengthen the voice of risk committee. Right now, clearinghouses assign clearing members uh, seats on the risk committee. What I envision is a stronger role of these risk committees. The risk committee deciding a specific risk-related issue, and the board of directors wants to disregard such recommendation of the risk committee. Then the board of directors need to notify, for instance, the regulators, and a vote of the majority of the members is needed for the board of directors to overcome a negative, for example, recommendation of the risk committee. In some way, this tuning of the governance structure of clearinghouses might be able to better align the voice of the members to their risk-bearing role, and in this way, reduce the moral hazard of the firm. Another possible way to strengthen the resilience of clearinghouses is to requiring them to have a stronger and bigger skin in the game in the clearinghouse default waterfall. Right now, and the paper provides some uh, more specific data on the actual exposure of the clearinghouse to an actual commitment of the clearinghouse itself to the default waterfall is very small in the range of 1% to 3% of the overall amount of contribution by the clearing members. The paper argued that the clearinghouse should have a bigger skin in the game. And the numbers, is they're not clear yet, but right now I'm arguing that the skin in the game of a clearinghouse should be between 10 and 20% of the overall amount of the default waterfall. In this way, the clearinghouse would have better incentive to have a prudent and a more risk-averse profile. And in this way, the clearinghouse incentive, risk-taking incentives, would be better aligned to the risk profile of its own members. The ring-fencing idea to strengthen the resilience of clearinghouses would simply exclude and eliminate them from the spillover risk that might come from other activities and risks that the infrastructure group they belong potentially take and would make the support of the clearinghouse as a utility more simpler for regulators and so more straightforward for the firm. So it would in some way, ring fencing would reduce the moral hazard that the infrastructural group might take on leveraging on the presence of a utility within their perimeter. Thinking about the recovery of clearinghouses, the paper proposed a new capital structure for clearinghouses, a new capital structure built on the issuance of convertible debt that would be used by the clearinghouse to refinance or to support the guarantee fund. 
My biggest problem that has been discussed among by commentators and policymakers is the operation of the default waterfall and the risk of the quality of its operations. If a clearing house were to go through the default waterfall and ask members to chip in and provide resources to keep its business afloat, the clearing house might exacerbate pressure on institutions that would already face systemic stress from the overall condition of the market. By issuing convertible debt, there should be, in my opinion, underwritten by the holding company of clearing houses. A clearing house would be able to find a counter-cyclical injections of resources at time of distress. This convertible debt instrument would be triggered in case the default waterfall has been used up and there would be a direct injections of new resources coming from a different source, not the members, but by the holding group to support the clearing house at time of distress. And finally, the resolution idea, what's going to happen if a clearing house reach the end of life? What's going to happen if all resources have been used up? And at that point, the hidden cost paper sort of builds and reconnect to the remutualization and skin in the game paper by saying, if we reach the resolution situated for a clearing house, what should then happen to the clearing house? And the paper said, at that point, I think the ultimate risk bearer, so the clearing member should take control of the clearing house and restart the engine of the firm. Some of these are the policy solutions that I envision to support and strengthen clearinghouses' resilience, recovery, and resolution. We've talked about clearinghouses in the context of the United States, but you've recently been appointed to the Policy Committee Consultation Working Group on clearinghouses for the European Securities Market Authority, or ESMA. Can you talk a little bit about how this analysis might differ between the U.S. context, the European, the international context? Clearing houses are cross-border in nature, in the sense that for if we think about the largest player in the market, they offer the service to members that are global players. And if we look at who are the members of clearing houses, we see quite small numbers of big players that operate in the global financial market. The diagnosis and prognosis of this paper can apply and actually apply also to, for example, European clearing houses and more generally to global clearing houses. My paper is dialogue directly with the work of the Financial Stability Board that published a few pieces on the resilience and resolution of clearing houses. And so the analysis that I draw for the United States, so the paper I wrote, these two papers are primarily focused on U.S. clearing houses, can be easily applied to European clearing houses. The European and UK clearing houses, after Brexit, we have to differentiate between EU and UK-based clearing houses. But even if in the EU there is a different regulatory framework, some of the issues that European clearing houses might face are very similar to the issues that American clearing houses face. These two papers, despite being US-focused, the policy solution refine and retune can be applied also to the global discourse on strengthening resilience and resolution of clearing houses. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from your scholarship in this area? Policymaker pick a winner in terms of market structure when they decided to reform the derivatives market and clearing houses were the winner as the risk managers for OTC derivatives and they were the solution to the market failure showed by the 2008 financial crisis. However, 10 years after Dodd-Frank was adopted and passed, 
there's still more work to be done to make this structure and this market infrastructure resilient and true bastion of financial stability. In order for those firms to meet the expectation and provide the financial stability that a policymaker demanded, more works need to be done. And what is interesting in this area is that I think incentives of market participant and policymaker are aligned. Industry participant, clearing members, clearing houses, and lawmakers all agree that we need resilient derivatives market. And so the interests of the parties are aligned to go forward and reform this market. So complete the regulatory agenda started back in 2010. The open question, and this is where my next parts are going, are twofold. On one side, what is the role of infrastructural group? We talk about the London Stock Exchange, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Group, the Intercontinental Exchange Group. They provide multiple functions. They provide some infrastructural function, but they provide other services to market participants, primarily data-related and cloud services. What is the role of this infrastructure group? What are the implications in terms of financial stability? What are the implications of this infrastructural group to competitiveness of the market? And the other big area of research and implication that this research might have is what is the role of DeFi and what are the dynamics between DeFi and clearinghouses or market infrastructure in general? What can be drawn from the experience of the market trends that brought market participants to centralized risk management in clearinghouses to a system where function and risk management function could be potentially decentralized to the different nodes of the system. I think there are a lot of open questions that still need to be answered. There are a lot of fascinating evolution that the industry is taking. And these pieces in some way wanted to provide a theoretical lens and a framework to understand the existing situation and see how did we get here? What are the issues right now? And how we can strengthen the system. And I think clearinghouses are unique in their economic structure, are unique in the way they perform their services. And because of their uniqueness, they present fascinating, in my opinion, corporate law and corporate finance angles. I think clearinghouses are going to stay in the market for long. They're not going to be disrupted completely. And the industry need to think more about how to make clearinghouses more resilient. Policymakers should think a bit more how to balance financial stability and market competitiveness in the way they regulate clearing houses and the access to their services. And academics can look more into the particular intermediaries and draw more implications for the bigger market structure pictures and market competitiveness. Our guest today has been Paolo Saguato, Assistant Professor of Law at George Mason University. We've discussed his article, Financial Regulation, Corporate Governance, and the Hidden Costs of Clearing Houses, which is forthcoming in the Ohio State Law Journal. Paolo is also the author of The Ownership of Clearinghouses, When Skin in the Game is Not Enough, The Remutualization of Clearinghouses, which was published in the Yale Journal of Regulation. I'll add links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Paolo, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thanks all for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.